While it seems like value-based healthcare has been around for almost 20 years, why do we, as consumers and clinicians, have such limited information about what it actually means to us? and welcome to episode two of The Behavior Breakdown. I'm your host, Lynette Elizabeth, and for those who are just tuning in, which I'm assuming is most of you since we just launched this project, I'm a behavior analyst working in the field of applied behavior analysis, most often referred to as ABA. I created this podcast because throughout my decade of experience in behavioral health, I've been presented with questions from parents and professionals about how to navigate clinical and financial details of ABA. My goal is to provide enlightening and factual episodes, interviews with professionals with a wide range of viewpoints, and roundtable dialogues where we hit the hard topics facing our families and industry. The Behavior Breakdown operates on a value-for-value model, meaning you won't hear any ads since we are 100% listener-supported. It was important to me that corporate influence and biased perspectives were eliminated from these conversations. This is 100% about what's important to our audience, so please visit us on Patreon and become a patron for our show. There are three tiers to choose from that provide access to bonus content, interviews, and more. However, you can select a tier and adjust the amount to whatever you feel is worth the value these episodes provide. You can also check us out on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. You can find all these links in the show notes below. Okay, so in today's episode, we're talking about the shift from a fee-for-service model, which is something we are all accustomed to in applied behavior analysis, into the value-based care model. So what is value-based care? Well, I'm glad you asked, because this episode will cover what it is, where it came from, and what it means for our clinicians and families seeking behavioral health care. Buckle up, because I sure didn't know most of this was going on heading into the research week, and I'm going to bet most of you didn't either. So you may have heard the term value-based care becoming more popular in the last few years, but very few of us BCBAs actually know what value-based care really is, where it came from, or what it even means for our future. So let's break it down and pull back a few layers on this onion to figure out how much of an impact this may have for us. Based on a journal article I found written in 2019, published by BMC Health Service Research, they say, in 2006, the concept of value-based compensation in healthcare was introduced by Porter, a professor of business strategy at Harvard Law School. And during the previous years, healthcare in the U.S. and other Western countries had been heavily criticized for its high costs and suboptimal quality and safety. Porter introduced a twofold strategy to tackle this. First, he said healthcare should be reorganized into value-based care pathways around patient groups. These pathways should no longer be merely focused on increasing production while shifting costs to other providers, but they should strive for the highest value for the patients. For example, the best possible outcomes for an acceptable cost. Second, these pathways should compete for the favor of patients and care purchasers. Patients, in turn, should behave more as critical healthcare consumers, while purchasers buy the best possible healthcare for the lowest possible cost. During the last decade, value-based healthcare has been embraced by almost all stakeholders in most of the Western healthcare system, but it still has yet to be completely implemented. Although it's widely believed that value-based healthcare contributes to more efficient clinical pathways, a focus on relevant outcomes, cost awareness, and transparency, evidence of its effectiveness is still scarcely available. While it seems like value-based healthcare has been around for almost 20 years, why do we, as consumers and clinicians, have such limited information about what it actually means to us? While ABA is new in the healthcare system since the adoption of insurance-based funding, I would expect as a healthcare consumer that I would have some knowledge of what appears to be a commonplace model in today's healthcare. 
Well, according to Aetna's website, value-based care is defined as a healthcare delivery model in which providers are paid based on the health outcomes of their patients. The payment model reimburses providers based on the quality of outcomes they deliver as opposed to the services they render, which is the case in the current fee-for-service model. For those who are not familiar, a fee-for-service model pays a provider an agreed-upon fee for the number of units billed to an insurance company. So in ABA, a unit is often broken down into 15-minute increments or one-hour segments. So essentially, for every hour you provide a service, you get compensated at a standard rate similar to an hourly wage. While this has been a perpetual barrier in the field of ABA and its expansion into areas of need, which are often limited by socioeconomic status, geographical region, or simply just the high cost level that can be upwards of about $60,000 per child per year. It also provides hurdles for companies when trying to stabilize technician schedules, analyst caseload, and managing cancellations among staff and families in order to produce enough revenue to fund the massive overhead costs required to maintain these organizations. By transitioning to a value-based care model, it might increase the possibility for organizations and insurance companies to effectively provide services to a wider range of patients needing it. However, under many value-based contracts, providers share benefits as well as financial risk with the health insurance companies. In addition to negotiated payments, they can earn incentives for providing high-quality and efficient care. However, if they don't meet the terms of the negotiated contracts, for example, by not meeting the outcomes they agree to, providing effective services, or becoming less cost-effective, they can be liable for additional fees and penalties. While quality care can be provided under both models, it's the difference in how providers are paid paired with the way that a patient's care is managed that provides the opportunity for health improvements and savings in a value-based care environment. But what is the financial and proverbial cost of transitioning to this model? While healthcare leaders and policymakers have expressed the need to transition to a value-based payment structure for decades, the majority of the U.S. healthcare system still operates under a fee-for-service model, while speculating how to meet the standards for value-based care. Which, if you think about it, why is it such a struggle for our medical providers to show that their services produce beneficial outcomes for their patients? A partial explanation I ran across throughout my research is that a fee-for-service model translates into a reduced focus on preventative care and more focus on acute situations, which in turn drives up the cost. Preventative care tackles a patient's health prior to a medical condition that requires an immediate response, whereas an acute situation would be a medical event that occurs after medical treatment is the recourse. Value-based care is highly focused on an integrated healthcare system. And although we do make efforts to coordinate care to some extent in this industry, payers start to expect more. This means that we as providers will need to spend more time connecting with a client's entire treatment team, including their physicians, neurologists, psychologists, speech therapists, occupational therapists, and school-related services. Value-based care will point clinicians towards quality services and integration of wraparound services, such as the examples I just provided, to ensure that we're benchmarking what we're doing, not just to the patients themselves, but to others. The most essential areas being looked at by payers to integrate a value-based compensation system are cost of services, quality of outcomes, and family satisfaction. According to the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, also known as the BHCOE, which provides accreditation to ABA facilities, there are a few value-based payment models that are currently being implemented across healthcare. The first is capitation, where providers are paid a set payment per patient to cover specified services. For example, under a capitation arrangement, a provider would get a monthly payment for providing services to a patient with autism. Another option is pay for reporting, and this rewards providers for reporting results on quality measures. Quality measures have yet to be standardized across the field of ABA, but some providers and insurance companies have begun to partner together in order to begin the process. We're going to go into this further later in the episode. 
Another model is pay for performance, which ties financial incentives to performance on cost quality and efficiency measures. Next is bundled payments or episode-based payments, which provides a single negotiated payment for all services delivered for a clinically defined episode of care. This may look like an agreed-upon wage or rate for an entire six-month contract, which is the standard pre-authorization agreement agreed upon by insurance companies and providers. This model incentivizes coordination of care among providers, which we just discussed a moment ago. The last two models go hand-in-hand, and those are shared savings and shared risk. This is where reimbursements would reward providers for reducing healthcare spending on their patients below a level set by the payer, giving the provider a portion of the savings. Conversely, it would require providers to cover part of the cost if they don't meet the savings targets. The level of data available on the effectiveness of these programs in value-based care has simply just not had enough time to determine if it's truly more valuable for the patient or the provider. I speculate that in theory, this model would benefit both the patient and the provider. However, a number of different variables could easily affect how probable it is that ABA companies will be able to successfully execute the requirements. According to the BHCOE, there are four main elements of any value-based payment framework. Quality measurement, stakeholder engagement, data and analytics, and industry standards. So let's break that down a little bit further and talk about what information an ABA company would need to access in order to be successful in adopting value-based care. First, let's start with quality measurement. There are three main components of quality measurement, which include structural measurements, process measurements, and outcome measurements. Structural measures would include things such as the number of clinics an organization has, its average years of experience, and whether the organization uses paper or electronic medical records. Process measurements cover accepted recommendations for clinical practice, including autism screenings, development of treatment plans, and clinical delivery of services. And finally, outcome measures reflect the impact of care that has been delivered through progress shown by the client, positive family and patient feedback, and meaningful gains in socially significant goals. The second component of value-based care is stakeholder engagement. This would require companies interacting with stakeholders to define the value and quality of service and determining how to measure it. There are a few different ways this is currently being managed, and we're going to talk about that shortly. The third component is data and analytics, which are essential for identifying measurements that address an opportunity for improvement, which can include client-to-client variability. This has become a difficult task considering how wide of a variety ABA care is being delivered across clients. Behavior plans and skill goals vary greatly from agency to agency and even from analyst to analyst. So the industry as a whole will have to settle upon ways to measure these types of single case measurements across the population as a whole. The final component is industry standards, and according to the BHCOE, these include clinical and process guidelines, best practices, accreditation standards, industry averages, and new research. What we can expect once ABA moves into a value-based care model is more payer auditing, a greater need for transparency, and sharing of data across providers. We will also need to determine what outcome data is and what the impact and importance of the data is going to be. ABA has historically been focused on single-subject analyses, and our industry will have to collaborate to produce aggregate data beyond a single-subject case. There is high variability in the methodology of treating individuals with ABA, so collaboration is also needed across providers to agree on standardization benchmarks. This could be defining what progress means by using things such as standardized assessments, measuring mastery goals across all of their clients, which in turn will require standardizing goal language. Additional variables may include deciding what assessments to administer to clients, how and when we're conducting the assessments, how we write treatment plans, and how we write goals, collecting of data, company protocols, and predictability of outcomes. There will also need to be a measure of outcome data over a long period of time. 
As you can see, this can be a slippery slope of variables that ABA currently measures on a case-by-case -case basis. And if those variables aren't enough to consider, value-based care also requires a focus on how to measure impacts of comorbidity, which is when multiple diagnoses are affecting someone such as a child with autism and ADHD, their ecological factors, and whether these factors can be measured through coordination of care with physicians and other professionals. ABA providers have long struggled to measure the quality of their outcomes, given the fact that autism symptoms and progress can vary considerably from one child to the next. That makes value-based care tricky to adopt as the model is built around rewarding outcomes. Effectively transitioning to a value-based care model will require adjusting things at the patient level and also adjusting for the clinical severity of the case. Is all of this work really beneficial to agencies because it sounds like a giant undertaking? Well, after a company has done troubleshooting areas in need of progress, effective data can actually be used to gain leverage with funders, get higher rates, negotiate for better policies with their contracts, increase referrals, and increase legislature leverage. Additionally, getting a handle on the cost to deliver service, the time to deliver service, and efficient protocols will be essential to being effective when value-based care comes. This is a tall order, but it will turn the tides in procedures and processes in ABA in the most dramatic shift in healthcare reimbursement systems since legislatures began adopting laws that would require insurance to fund ABA services, which began around 2008. And while there are not currently a lot of good models yet for value-based care in ABA, we are starting to see some agencies pulling ahead of the industry average in an attempt to define these critical measures. Figuring out just how each ABA company plans to stay in the VVHC game is going to vary widely for a period of time. But although ABA has just recently begun transitioning to technology-forward practices that do start to address these variables, we've already seen massive improvements in data collection technology. According to Cheryl Michael, the Chief Product Officer of the Applied Behavior Analysis Software Company, Central Reach, whether through mergers or acquisitions, providers will need to have a handle on the data that drives their business, but also potentially be able to integrate it into other areas such as HR and their financial systems. During the Autism Investor Summit, Michaels also discussed technology's role in the transition to value-based care, which experts say is where the healthcare industry is inevitably headed in the years to come. Technology can help providers crunch numbers and quantitatively assess the quality of care that patients receive, making it easier for them to transition to value-based models. She went on to say, We recognize that practices are looking for a way to operate more efficiently, optimize a return on their investment, and provide superior services and outcomes to their learners. Technology continues to evolve and evolve rapidly. The healthcare sector will continue to look for ways to leverage these capabilities and drive their efficiency. It is expected that many providers will be resistant to the standardization practices required for a value-based care model, but it is essential that providers develop standards for the organization and reporting of data at, st at state and national levels. According to an article written by Chris Larson in April of 2022, a behavioral health executive with OWL conducted a survey in which about 24% of executives say they felt little or not at all prepared for value-based care arrangements, while another 24% saying they had assessed the preparation as a lot or a great deal. The remaining 52% said they moderately felt prepared for value-based care, but responded to an open question regarding their concerns, which focused around data collection and providing treatment. Critics of value-based healthcare have been vocal in their attempts to bring attention to the barriers affecting the idealistic nature of the system. Several branches in the healthcare system outside of ABA are further ahead in their adoption of this model and are demonstrating the results of the migration away from a fee-for-service payment. 
BMC Health Service Research cites that, unfortunately, well-intentioned efforts to move to a more effective system are adding to the already substantial administrative and regulatory burden on physicians, hospitals, and other providers. The current administrative burden faced by providers diverts limited time and resources that could be better spent on patient care. In addition, physician practices spend a sizable amount of time and resources trying to get paid for the care that they provide. This is a particular problem in the Medicaid program where reimbursement rates often fail to cover the cost of care. Transitioning to a patient-centered and value-based healthcare payment and delivery system is a good idea. However, initiatives that divert physician time away from clinical care are not patient-centered, and investing precious resources on administrative and reporting requirements without any improvement in the quality of care is anything but value-based. They go on to critique multiple aspects of value-based care, which begin with specifying the rather narrow conception of value and express concern over how that narrow value definition starts to cause problems. Value-based healthcare conceives value in a merely economic way. For example, clinical outcomes divided by its cost. However, value in philosophy holds a much broader definition. BMC claims to show that value-based healthcare holds a rather hierarchical conception of value because it perceives a certain outcomes as dominant over others. They say it has become clear that value-based healthcare merely encompasses healthcare's instrumental value and does not take into account the intrinsic value. This would refer to a client and their family's natural value concepts, which we all know vary from family to family and culture to culture. Those factors are a large portion of ensuring social significance when we develop treatment plans for our kids. The problem compounds itself by its use of a fixed outcome hierarchy, which is highly standardized for all patients with a certain diagnosis. Such a simplified account neglects the fact that clients and their family's personal values in life differ to an important extent. Traditionally, patient values are their unique preferences, concerns, and expectations that he or she brings to a clinical encounter. They believe that the patient's unique values in life should be prescriptive and action-guiding, not using a standard set of indicators as the primary guiding force. While value-based healthcare is purely outcome-driven with a focus on the expected clinical results relative to its costs, the focus of patient-centered care is on the perspective of the particular patient in a given situation. It acknowledges the importance of respect for patients as unique living beings and the obligation to know them as persons in context of their own social worlds, listen to them, inform them, and to respect them. Patient-centered care also stresses that good outcomes must be defined in terms of what is meaningful and value to the individual patient. Good models would enable individuals to define goals and preferences for future medical treatment and care, to discuss these goals and preferences with their family and healthcare providers, and to record and review these preferences if appropriate. When exploring other healthcare industries, BMC provided an example of patient-centered care in relation to value-based healthcare when addressing cancer patients. They stated, we developed PalPal, a tablet-based tool for navigating elderly patients with cancer throughout the last phase of their lives. The tool helps patients and their spouses to discover their goals in life and to clarify personal values. PalPal asks them, for example, what would you preferably like to do on an average day? It then addresses the question of how healthcare could be arranged in such a way that it helps to accomplish these goals. For example, if a patient loves gardening, it is discussed how healthcare could enable him to continue gardening for as long as possible. PalPal also supports outcome measurements using adaptive techniques in order to obtain personalized measurements depending on a patient's personal values and goals. This may be a patient-reported outcome measure, but sometimes other techniques such as interviews and observations are required. Value-based healthcare's focus on target and performance management, the business of outcome measurement, and on choice and exit, where clients take an active role in staying or leaving a healthcare agency, may endanger the concept of trust in professionals and solidarity. 
They close by stating, healthcare desperately needs a next step in value-based care. When investigating a little bit further, I discovered that Michigan State University produced a report titled Measuring and Assigning Accountability for Healthcare Spending, which provides additional critiques of value-based healthcare. They explain that it inappropriately assigns accountability to physicians and hospitals for service they did not deliver and can't control, while at the same time failing to hold healthcare providers accountable for the many services they do deliver. It also financially penalizes physicians and hospitals who care for patients with complex health problems and who deliver evidence-based services to their patients. In addition, it fails to provide physicians, hospitals, and other providers with the kind of actionable information they need to identify opportunities to control healthcare spending without harming their patients. And it gives patients misleading information about which providers deliver low-cost, high-quality care. The report also describes how the risk scores currently used to adjust spending measures fail to recognize the important differences in patient needs and can thereby mislabel physicians and hospitals as inefficient if they care for patients who have an acute illness or complex problems. This can become exponentially difficult when attempting to manage the high variability across the autism spectrum, which we have always treated individually. I would find it incredibly frustrating if my treatment of a client was labeled as inefficient by value-based healthcare standards when my treatment plan was in the best interest of the client. I'm not suggesting this is occurring since we have not implemented value-based healthcare as an industry as a whole, but it does present a barrier as we start to see the movement to standardize ABA. A detailed methodology is presented within this article for assigning accountability to providers for the services they can actually control or influence, and it explicitly identifies which services might be changed in order to achieve the same or better outcomes for a patient at a lower cost. In addition, methods are described for comparing providers' performance and treating patients with similar needs rather than trying to use a single, simplistic score to quote-unquote adjust spending. The report shows how these improved methodologies can use existing data to produce more valid, reliable, comprehensive, and actionable measures than those currently being used. Better ways of measuring and assigning accountability for spending are necessary, but not sufficient for achieving a higher value healthcare system. Even if they use better spending measures, value-based purchasing, value-based performance, and shared saving payment systems do not remove the fundamental barriers to better care that are created by the current fee-for-service system. It goes on to show how better ways of measuring spending can actually help payers and providers move more quickly to true payment reforms, such as bundled payments, warranties, condition-based payments, and global payments. In ABA, as in earlier phases of other medical practices, payers appear to be at the forefront of standardizing value-based care. Many different insurance companies are getting their hands in the pot on joining forces with ABA companies to produce a standardization for outcomes. For example, we have already seen multiple insurance organizations partnering with large-scale ABA companies to begin developing outcome and benchmark measures. This appears to be an attempt to develop quality measures that could be used to dictate rates payers would provide for companies that can adequately report high outcome data. Current companies that have partnered with ABA providers include Magellan Healthcare and Invo Healthcare, who announced their partnership in June of 2021. They revealed the launch of a pilot program in collaboration with each other, which was created to define standards of care for children with autism undergoing ABA treatment. In addition, Aetna announced their partnership with ACES in August of 2021. Their press release indicated that they were going to partner together to establish an institute of quality for autism care. They state, the institute will ensure both organizations are able to continue growing and providing their members access to high-quality autism services. Evernorth, a subsidiary of Cigna, announced their involvement with the BHCOE in April of 2022. They indicated that the new partnership will allow the organizations to collaborate on developing quality performance measures that will help people with autism and their caregivers assess their quality of treatment. 
Succinctly, Centene announced their partnership with the BHCOE in May of 2022. Their goal is to support access to quality services for people on the autism spectrum and related developmental disabilities. This research collaboration will better assess treatment outcomes and quality of care through formalized measurements of ABA services. It will also allow benchmarking of national healthcare quality standards for behavioral health that aim to improve quality and efficiency. So the big question at this point really becomes, what benchmarks are these companies actually measuring in order to show their outcomes? While the information provided amongst providers and insurance companies remains really broad and mostly includes statements such as offering timely access to care, meeting medical necessity criteria, measuring treatment progress and outcomes with evidence-based tools, maintaining accreditation from a recognized agency, involving caregivers, family, and significant others, and coordinating care with medical professionals. While I understand the simplistic explanation for patients and press releases, the question still persisted. And upon researching a little bit further into how income measures are actually being constructed, I found an organization named the International Consortium for Health Outcomes Measurement, or ICHOM, who developed the Autism Spectrum Disorders Standards Set, with sponsors such as Trumpet Behavioral Health, Centria, CARD, HopeBridge, Learn Behavioral, InBloom, and Autism Learning Partners facilitating the research. This initiative aimed to standardize the measurement of core autism symptoms, functioning, accessibility, and support. Dr. Ivy Chong from iCHOM explains the goal of the ASD standard set as such. So I wanted to start with the ultimate goal of the Autism Spectrum Disorder standard set was really to create a world where patients can ask their providers about meaningful outcomes and clinicians can respond with data-driven answers. This will protect patients from harmful or ineffective treatments and really allow them to review facts and information before making care decisions. In the inception of this standard set was due in part to the fact that there were not yet industry standards for the measurement of treatment outcomes for autism spectrum disorders. To further complicate things, there continues to be many perspectives on how to treat the condition, what is treated, and by whom, with a range of opinions and many stakeholders with very strong views. Two years ago, a group of individuals came together and, like most initiatives are started, decided that results were lacking in some way and thus partnered with ICHOM and agreed to sponsor the development of this particular standard set. It was critical that a mix of subject matter experts and lived users participate in this project to ensure that outcomes selected would be both valid and sensitive to changes that were intended to be detected. This group was tasked with clearly defining these outcomes and selecting the appropriate tools that would be sensitive to the changes in the patient health status during the course of treatment. She goes on to explain what the ASD standard set is designed to do and how it can be embedded with providers servicing individuals with autism and its alignment between value-based care and maintaining client values. I'm sure many of you are wondering and asking, what is the Autism Spectrum Disorder Standard Set and what is it not? This is a minimum set. It's meant to measure the outcomes for the condition rather than the process of treatment, system of care, or even accessibility. While these are all important considerations, the goal of value-based healthcare is to ensure treatments or their outcomes have a meaningful, positive impact on the patient's quality of life. Our challenge was to create not only a set that aligned patients and providers, but to determine the areas or domains that were critical to measure and also be feasible across multiple settings, providers, and points in time. 
We needed to prioritize the many outcomes that were brought forth by the working group and reduce the set to a minimum number of items that would not be discarded due to lack of usability or feasibility in the field. Considerations included expertise available, cost, cultural, and diversity variables. You can imagine that there were many challenges in this process. Thus, the set was not developed to identify the effectiveness of a particular modality of treatment, nor does it compare the effectiveness of particular treatments for the condition. The set was developed really to measure outcomes for the domains identified by the working group, which included experts from around the world, academics, researchers, service providers, and perhaps more importantly, lived users and their advocates. The condition-specific outcome indicators are meant to be collected following diagnosis to facilitate benchmarking over time, and finally, to measure health status at the conclusion of treatment. The standard set then is a call to action and intended to measure the extent to which targets are achieved with the goal to achieve improvement and equity in care. Furthermore, she discusses how their research and development of the ASDSS yielded a minimum set of domains that should be addressed by providers and breaks them down as follows. An outcome is a variable that is measured and objectifies health status, like family functioning. Domain, however, is an umbrella term for groups of outcomes that can be clustered together, like patient-reported outcomes, clustering together outcomes such as quality of life. With respect to outcomes, we were interested in selecting those that would serve practical relevance in practice and that would provide clinically useful information. Additionally, we needed to consider that the outcome could be incorporated into routine practice without being a significant burden on systems, providers, or patients. The first domain is are the core symptoms or specifically those that are typically identified during the course of a diagnosis of autism with respect to res restrictive and repetitive behaviors and social communication. The second domain really encompassed daily functioning and looked at adaptive living skills as well as leisure skills and leisure activities. The third domain really looked at quality of life and family functioning, what we refer to accessibility and support. And then the final domain was what we labeled other. And this was associated features or other difficulties that individuals with autism often face. So including sleep issues, anxiety, and emotional regulation. I encourage you to watch the entire webinar or review the slides from the link I provided in the show notes, which goes further into the history of their development, the process they undergo for creating these standards, and how they have organized and classified the ASDSS domains of measurement. From all accounts, the ASDSS appears to have made significant strides in evaluating outcome measures that could ultimately be used in a value-based care system. However, it still has limitations that have yet to be addressed, such as the inclusion of comorbidity, collaboration among providers, and successful implementation of these standards across a large portion of the field. They emphasize that more work will need to be done in the future as the current ASD standard set begins to produce results and learning opportunities. However, the primary goal is still the commitment to deployment, integrating into operations, and beginning benchmarking across organizations. The long-term results of these efforts remain to be seen on a large scale throughout our industry. As we go through massive growth efforts that are starting to shift the industry's approach and standards, transparency and collaboration are going to go hand in hand. We have providers on both sides of the standardization coin. While some providers agree with the development of outcomes and migration to a value-based healthcare system, others value the client-to-client -client individualization that our behavioral roots have taught us. 
I think the biggest question that remains is, how far will the needle move towards focusing on outcomes for profit at the expense of client individualization? My hope for the future is that these powerful partnerships can produce patient-centered, value-forward care for our clients, but I also believe the acknowledgement for our ethical standards for individualization will inevitably be a barrier as much of our industry attempts to standardize these outcomes. I will leave the rest of the opinions up to you, but I believe the conversation needs to continue among your peers and management to ensure that your clients will always come first. Thank you for tuning in to the Behavior Breakdown this week. If you enjoyed listening, please like and subscribe to our podcast on any of your preferred streaming services. Because this is a new podcast, you can be integral with our growth by sharing this podcast with at least one friend or one family member you feel would benefit from these episodes. Thank you for all the patrons who currently support this show, and I look forward to meeting new patrons in the coming weeks. As always, drop us a comment, send us an email, or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube. Thank you, and talk to you guys again next week, where we're going to break down the accreditation standards and applied behavior analysis.